I'm Jake Thompson, and this is the Better Than Yesterday podcast. What's up, and welcome to another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. This is episode 38, and I'm your host, Jake Thompson, Chief Encouragement Officer here at Compete Every Day. And in this week's show, we get to welcome Ashley Merriman, one of the co-authors of the book Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Uh, This book is probably one of my top five favorite reads. I've read it multiple times Uh, since I've owned it. I've given it to numerous friends uh, and, and encouraged a handful of others to dive into the book. Uh, in the book, Poe and Ashley dive into the science of competition. Uh, they t- take a look at individual versus team versus head-to-head, men versus women, different settings. Uh, and this conversation was just an absolute joy to be able to geek out over science and research behind competition. And more importantly, behind this idea of being better than yesterday and what approaches we can take to be better than yesterday and what mindsets shifts need to take place for us to put ourselves in a position for that. It's a great listen. It's one of our longer episodes, but it is chock full of information. Uh, You're absolutely going to love it. And during the episode, I tell you how you can win a copy of Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman's book, Top Dog. I'll be giving away two copies to listeners. So stick with us all the way through the end of the show and you'll find out how you can get that book. Now, without further ado, I am excited to welcome to the show, Ashley Merriman. Ashley, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I I have been excited to get you on the show and just connect ever since diving into Top Dog and, and honestly reading it multiple times within a span of a couple of months. Uh, well, thanks. I, I, I'm fascinated with competition uh, and reading the book, especially from a science standpoint, uh, has just been incredible. And, and I've obviously recommended it. Before we dive into the science of winning and losing and talking competition, I'd love mm-hmm. if you could share just a little bit with the listeners about your background and then what led you into the study of competition. Well, I always think that I'm the least interesting thing I know about. Uh, so, so, you know, I like the, I'm talking really happy about the science, but I'm, you know, I, I'm a conduit for the science on a good day. Uh, so, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing is the second book that I wrote with my friend Poe Bronson. The first book we wrote was titled Nurture Shock, New Thinking About Children, which is the science of child development. It's a sort of different read experience than Top Dog, but both books are looking at what makes humans tick. How does psychology, neuroscience, the environment, friends, family the will of the wind, how does that all affect you in different contexts? Uh, but <clears throat> so after we had written Nurture Shock, we were, you know, continuing to write magazine articles and thinking. And we also said, well, you know, we want to write another book. What would it be? And it was really looking at the science that we had in hand and what did we love? And for both of us, it was University of Michigan researcher Steve Garcia was doing the science of competition. And the second we sort of thought of it in that phraseology, we both went done and and literally that day started writing and researching a treatment 
that we could send to our that we could send to our publisher in terms of what that book would be about. So at that point, you know, we knew some sort of mechanics of how competition works, um, but that's really when the research in terms of what would what would we want to say um, came about. That's fascinating. I actually, I was completely wrong. Uh, looking into <laughs> it, I would have guessed that when looking at nurture shock and development there, mm-hmm. the idea that a lot of, and I, and I think I mentioned it in some, a lot of today's society is so anti-competition, at least in word they are. And I know you've talked about this a ton because mm-hmm. we we give trophies to everyone and we, and we I emphasize- hate that so much. Oh God, me too. Uh, <laughs> like one of my just biggest hates in the world. We is- can do an entire episode <laughs> just on my hatred of everybody gets a trophy and we would, could do four more after that. I, <laughs> I don't know if you want me on that soapbox. No, I, I, I'm all for that soapbox. <laughs> Actually, that's where I assume part of the the inspiration for Top Dog mm-hmm. came from is while doing the research on, on children and, and nurture shock that pieces of information started to pop out that you had obviously a very strong passion as well mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> for the yeah. anti-everyone-gets-a-trophy. Well, uh, you know, that's it's really interesting that to, that part of the road, I guess, is sort of interesting to go down, which is there's a... Th- a line in the end of the first chapter of Nurture Shock that sort of references, by implication, if you read it, maybe not everybody should get a trophy. And and we both were like, hmm. And and that chapter was specifically about the effects of praise on, on and motivation on kids and what is this. And both of us had, you know, done a lot of time looking at the research of Carol Tweck and other people and we're coming really hard down on the idea of false praise and false praise is really distractive for a bunch of different reasons. And that, but implication would put a question mark for everybody gets a trophy because it seems like it's false praise, right? It's praising you regardless of what you actually did or didn't, didn't do, let alone didn't or didn't achieve. And uh, so that was, I'm sure in the back of my mind and, you know, talked to a lot of parents and, educators about how to motivate kids. So it was certainly sort of in the ether. I can't say I wasn't thinking about it, but I didn't really have a hard view. Not until actually after we'd finished Top Dog. And since then, having talked to people about it, having interviewed Olympic coaches, talked to Olympians, talked to parents, talked to coaches of every level, really. And more science specifically related to sort of universal overpraising has come out since we wrote Top Dog. And now I'm militantly hated it. <laughs> I, uh, even as Top Dog came out, I'm like, I don't think that's right. But I'm open. Now I just will rant and rave. <laughs> no, hey, I, 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 we, need, we need people to rant and rave. And it's fascinating because especially today in today's age and you see a lot of the books and content that are being written and despite mm-hmm. this overwhelming idea of the false praise or everyone gets a trophy even if you were last place there's also this heavy push toward grit and determination mm-hmm. and the importance of having adversity and failure to be able to learn from and where better else from a youth standpoint than sports and school mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and fast, it just blows my mind. And, and I know, obviously, is a passion of yours uh, in that space. Is there 
in the future more work that you plan to dive into this realm or back into the youth space of the importance of competition to nurturing them even more? Well, I think I need to be substantive rather than just give you an answer of yeah. yes or no, because <laughs> otherwise I don't think it will make sense. Uh, so let's just do a little background on why I hate everybody to trophy besides and but it relates to competition and coaching and performing as an individual yourself and all of that. Um, so I'm not advocating hunger games. <laughs> I'm not advocating blood sport and I'm not saying everything needs to be a competition. I don't believe that firmly don't believe that. And if you gave me a choice between everybody gets a trophy and nobody gets a trophy, I'm going to pick nobody every time. No question. So it's not about constantly ratcheting up competition. It's understanding when competition is valuable. So that then is the next question. When is it valuable? Well, for true novices, it's not. Right? If I am on my, you know, if I'm four years old, I've never even seen a soccer ball, let alone been on a pitch. To have competition is ridiculous because I'm trying to figure out how to run on the grass without falling down. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where to put my foot on the ball to make it go forward again without falling down. And I'm really there just because my friends came with me. And I really just wanted to play with my friends. So to have competition there is, but really for any true beginner, competition seems to be fairly destructive. Now, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, you're a true elite performer. And I'm not talking average, you do well, but, you know, an Olympian stature. Now, competition is valuable, but you're really competing against yourself, right? Unless you're talking about Phelps swimming against a shark. <laughs> but, the, but the only reason is who else is he going to swim against, right? Because when an Olympian is in a pool, on a pitch, in a court, they're competing against their record and their personal best. So the real competition is themselves. Yes, they want the outcome, but I do know world champions who can win a match and be furious at the end because they knew they were going to win. That wasn't why they were there, right? They were there because it was qualifying for another competition or it was because they were going to break the American record or whatever it was. So there, the trophy and the prize, yes, you want it, but it's not why you're there, when competition becomes incredibly important is for the intermediate who doesn't know if they're good or not. And they want to know, am I good? Is this worth pursuing? Is this worth pushing myself? And the best way to do that is to compete by someone else to see if you're or he's better than you. And that's when the trophies become really important and really powerful and very motivating in that intermediate phase. So, so then, you know, you've got it. So there is no right answer in terms of no one gets a trophy or everybody gets a trophy. I mean, there's mathematic things, you know, sales contests, about 30% of people should get a trophy. More than that, it becomes disincentivizing because you don't really want to work so hard because you know you automatically got it. Um, but also then, as we talked about in Top Dog, how you structure it, how big is the prize, how small is the prize, does everybody get the same prize, 
all have different effects and they're all going to be different and appropriate depending on the context, who's competing, what the goal is. You know, you've got to think about this from two perspectives. The perspective of the person who's winning or the person who's who's competing to win, right? Uh, but it wasn't really until I was halfway through a book about competition when I was like, oh, you also have to think about it from the perspective of the sponsor. Because those aren't the same, right? A sponsor's goal for a 5K may be everybody in town needs to start running. And I don't really care about who has the best time. But the entrant might say, no, I need to be the top five because the top five have a, a cash prize. And I need to make rent. And I'm going to do it by running 5K. So, so all those are kind of in there. And that's, not, that's all related in backstory to the everybody gets a trophy. Um, if you want me to keep going, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I love this. I love this. And that actually brought up – so I had two things that popped to mind uh, from I, I, that. And I have like 20 different directions I'm going. I'm sorry. No, I, this uh, – trust me. I could geek out on this stuff all day. The first direction is mm-hmm. you brought up the, the one end of the spectrum with the Olympian who's competing against mm-hmm. their best time, the elite in the sport. Mm-hmm. Have you seen ways that everyday individuals – can take that approach or have found success applying that approach? Or is is it only those at the very, very high end of their sport or profession that just have a switch they can flip and only focus on their lane, what they're doing, who they're competing against, which is themselves, and not get caught up on the other opponent? Oh, well, I think that's totally wrong. I will completely disagree with you on that. Okay. The, the Olympian is going to the Olympics – or a tournament, and they're absolutely affected by their competition, right? They, you know, it may be strategically, I'll scratch one race and go on to another, depending on what my odds are, depending on, hey, he's got the world record on this, but I'll get him next time on the whatever, it doesn't matter what race it is, right? But so they're strategically, they're always paying attention to their competition and who their opponent is. That's a constant. And if you don't look back, that person's going to pass you by, whether you're talking about wind drag or a kid in a high school math class or some guy on Wall Street. You have to be aware of your competition. It's that you want to use your awareness to catalyze your improvement. And it's not about tearing that other guy down but using him to help you push forward. So if you want to look for a rival, if you want to look for the opponent, you want to look for someone who's just a little bit better than you. Because that's really highly motivating because if you get some, if if I'm just learning how to swim and again I'll pick on my Phelps, if I'm just learning how to swim and you give me the Phelps record, well I'm getting out of the pool, there's no point. Right? But if you get me in a pool and I've been there for this is my first lesson and you say the person in the next lane she's been here a week, Oh, well, she's only been here a week. I don't know. Maybe I could take that. Or what can I learn in a week? Right? So so there's always engagement, but the focus is using people to make you do better, not about how do I tear down the competition. And and that's the key. So we're focusing, and this goes back to praise and a whole another line of thought in terms of, you know, you're gonna focus on improvement. You know, I tell a lot of I tell a lot of athletes and coaches, similar to what I was saying earlier about if you're only, you know, they're not just here for the medal, right? Sometimes the W at the end is a distraction. 
And if you only focus on the result, you missed it. Because sometimes you didn't win because you were great. You won because the other person had a bad day. Or weather. Or who knows, something crazy happened. But if you only congratulate yourself and say, wow, I did terrifically, I won, you missed that opportunity, and you can't rely on that person having a bad day the next time you see them, right? Yeah. So, and maybe you had a great day, but maybe you have 10 years of experience in something, and the nearest competitor on that particular day had one year. No one expected him to do well. Everyone expected you to do well. So, again, that's not really a success. And you still have to say, okay, I, I blew everybody out of the water, but I have so much more experience in this. I still need to focus on how can I improve the next time and not be distracted by the fact that I was actually successful that day. It's still about how I'm going to be better the next time. And I, lo- I love that mindset. And, and that makes me want to ask you when, when we talked about or when you, you shared about the idea, and I love the chapter in the book, of, of that person just a little bit ahead of you that's pushing mm-hmm. you and, and looking to them. Mm-hmm. Is there... And I don't even know if there is, but is there a healthy way? And that to- usually motivates that person too, by the way. Oh, yes. that person may often be actually think they're the one who's behind you and looking forward and pushing. So and, it, and, it, and it can end up being a pretty productive relationship. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, and you get those people, I mean, in the gym, like you have, sometimes mm-hmm. you have those workout buddies mm-hmm. and, and you've got yep. that person and it pushes you. Is there a way, and maybe it is in, in reframing that proper mindset where you can maintain mm-hmm. looking at that competitor from a healthy perspective where you don't become completely obsessed with comparing yourself to them? Mm-hmm. Well, again, you're using that person as a tool to help you figure out where you are. That's the key. That is the key. If you're always focused on not beating him or her, you're focused on, I need to improve on something. How do I learn from someone? And it's not just, ooh, I'm not, you know, I'm this close to doing better. Tomorrow I could do that much and I can finally beat that person. No, it's identifying your weakness and seeing where they're better at it than you are so that you can either watch how they're doing it. You know, maybe it's a pacing thing. Maybe it's a stamina thing. Maybe it's total mental toughness. But what is it that you, you can learn from that person? What are they doing better than you? And that's not, again, a way to say tear them down. It's about saying, oh, I could do that. Oh, I haven't tried that yet. So it's about using them as people to inspire you to do more. No, absolutely. And I I love this. Uh, I'm just like absorbing everything. Um, One of the things I I wanted to touch on during our short time today that I know I talked about is the idea of anxiety and and stress and and that Mm – a lot of times we perceive that the person that is anxious or has some nervous energy, it's a bad thing going into competition because we want the, the person that's cool and calm under pressure and they're never nervous. They're going to hit the game winner. But that's not always the case because for some of us, we need a little bit of that anxious energy to perform at our best. Mm-hmm. What, what was that research like going through that process of understanding, oh, Contrary to popular belief, stress isn't necessarily a bad thing for everyone going into a board meeting, a competition, you name the situation. Um, more than that, stress just isn't necessarily a bad thing, period. Yeah. I, I, 
Well, you know, I always I look for the science. The science usually is science is showing me where to go. I don't start a project with an agenda. Here's my idea. I wonder if there's science to prove it. I more ask questions. I wonder if this is something. Maybe there's some science on this. So I don't have a predisposed answer. And then usually halfway in researching that one, I find this other completely different line of research. And that changes everything. So the um, so I think stress in some ways, I don't remember exactly the day I started going, oh, except for the fact that competition is about performing under pressure. So we knew we needed to understand stress better. But yeah, the idea that, well, I think, you know, there's sort of this specter of conversation about cortisol and stress and the horror, stress hormone. It's bad, bad, bad. Well, no, if it was that catastrophic, evolution would have taken care of it, right? If you don't have cortisol in your body, you don't wake up in the morning because it's cortisol that actually wakes you up. Melatonin puts you to sleep, but cortisol is the thing that wakes you up. So chronic stress is bad. Bad, 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 bad. Chronic stress and chronic elevations of cortisol, that shrinks the frontal lobe. Again, not good. But acute stress, responses into the moment actually can facilitate performance. And if you think about it, you know, I, especially I tell like parents and coaches all the time, if I have a 12-year-old, 14-year-old kid who never gets stressed, whether it's a test or a tournament or asking someone they have a crush out for a movie or just saying hi to that person in the hall, whatever, performance in a school play, they never get stressed at any of those things, I worry about that kid. Because that means that kid is emotionally disengaged. We only get stressed over things that are important to us. Otherwise, you can't get stressed. So the key then is figuring out how to use that stress in a productive way and not have it be so much stress that it becomes overwhelming but not having so little stress that you just, it's a cakewalk, meaning you lose because you weren't paying attention. The worst class I did in high school was biology because I was so bored <laughs> that I didn't do any of the homework. And I realized the day before the midterm, I hadn't done a single page of reading and I nearly failed because <laughs> I had to make up for half a summer, like, for like two months of work in a night. Uh-oh, perhaps I should actually care about this thing I don't care about. Um, so that then, um, that sort of idea, well, where is the sweet spot here? Then also looked at research by Yuri Hannon and others looking at, you were talking about the individual zone of optimal functioning, known as better known as eyes off, which is about how each one of us actually has a different set point in terms of how much or how little stress actually makes us do better. Some people do better, pretty calm and get very overwhelmed very quickly. Other people actually need someone screaming in their face, shaking them, going, this is a really big deal, to actually do their best. Is there, did, did your research show results or, or ways that people have been able to implement ways to be better under stress, managing stress, either finding that optimal level or perhaps mm -hmm. if you're the person that's, that does best when things are calm, how do you become mm -hmm. a little more comfortable handling, handling things when they are not calm, even though it's mm -hmm. not ideal for you? Well, I actually think doing 
especially for athletes or if you're a coach of athletes, you might actually want to do the eyes off assessment. You don't have to do a sort of clinical thing. You can just do a sort of, um, you know, fly by the seat of your pants. But the eyes off basic thing is to think about your emotional state. Were you happy, sad, angry, nervous, frantic, calm for your five best performances? And this is not the performance of your dreams, but to date, the best ones. And then you think about your and you think about your emotional state before, during, and after the competition, each point. Then you do the same process for your worst appearances. And once you start doing that, you start actually realizing this is my sweet spot. And everybody's different. Some people realize, oh, I actually do do better happy. Other people really do better hang- angry. And that's important for you to know because you may do better angry, but the guy next to you doesn't necessarily. Or vice versa. So you've got to start figuring out how do I manage what I need emotionally in a way that's productive for my team. Or at least not destructive for my team. <laughs> Sometimes you need that. Uh, so once you've sort of identified that process, uh, then remember I talked about stress. You're only stressed about the things that are important to you. Yeah. So the fastest thing to do, and what I tell people all the time, is you're not stressed. You're excited. You've been looking forward to this. You've been preparing for this. This is what you want. You, you love doing this. You need to interpret those butterflies that we all have in a positive way. Because the physiological cue is the same, right? It's how we feel about it. So one of my favorite examples of how to explain this was they did a study comparing uh, special operators in the military and people prone to panic attacks. And, and actually, it was operators and elite extreme athletes. And they, the athletes and the operators and the panickers on the other side, were all preternaturally able to detect changes in their heart rate. And I'm not talking about just, oh, my heart rate's going up. But they could tell you per beat how much it was going up right then. And they were usually right. But the difference was that the operators would say, hmm, my heart rate's going up. Is there something in the environment that's causing that? Is there something I'm doing that's causing that or what I'm about to do that makes this a good thing? Or do I need to actually change this somehow? The panickers would say, oh, my heart rate's going up. I'm going to have a panic attack. And then they did. So the operators are using that physiological response as this diagnostic tool, and the panickers are using it as the diagnosis. So that's another thing is you want to f- be really aware of how you're feeling emotionally and physiologically and not use this as your fate, but as a cue to help you make sure you have the environment, psychological, physiological, physical, that you need to do best. And if you don't, how are you going to change it? I love that. I love that. It, has there been a question that you have been asked or asked yourself since the release of Top Dog around competition that you now are interested in pursuing or understanding at some point? Something that you were like, man, I wish we'd included that in the book. (laughs) No, because that's that's why God invented the next book. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, No, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really proud that all right, we try our science to be sort of forward thinking. 
and I go to conferences, I read posters. So I know what that lab is doing for the next two or three years. And it's not like I'm missing something. There are new lines of research and new ideas that change my world every once in a while. So I've got one of those. If you want, I can tell you about that. It's not, and it sort of, it, it all goes back to competition. Yes, I'm intrigued. Let's chat. We still have time. So my new obsession, well, there's two things that I guess I have to talk about at once. And going back to what we were talking about in terms of how do you manage stress and how do you get yourself to do well? This is one of the every day I wake up motivated by this line of research. And that's asking the question, is this a challenge or a threat? Now, a challenge is, do you have the skills, resources, and ability to succeed? It doesn't mean it's a slam dunk. Remember, slam dunk means you may be underachieving because it's too easy. But all things considered, you're like, yeah, I think I can succeed. And in a threat, you don't have the skills, resources, knowledge, and ability to succeed. And the only question is, how badly is this going to go? Now, these two mindsets change strategy in competition, but they even change underlying physiology. So in a challenge, and I'm not going to go through all of it at the moment, but so like in a challenge state, you get a boost of testosterone versus cortisol. In a threat state, you're actually going to get more cortisol versus testosterone. A uh, challenge state, you get more adrenaline versus noradrenaline. Threat state, more noradrenaline versus adrenaline. So there are real physiological consequences to these mental states, just like we were saying more with stress. But so how do we use this then on the day-to-day basis? Well, if, you're, if you can succeed in a threat state... But in a threat state, to me, that's the day that you you did it in spite of yourself, right? We all hear about that, right? Oh wow, he was really pulling through. He's always, yeah. but, but you but you could still you could still prevail, right? But you know it's going to be really hard and miserable, and at the end you're just going to need to like curl up in a ball and just rest for a while, right? Yeah. So you guess, let's just say you can succeed in a threat state, but is that your ideal? Is that where you want to be? No. What do you think? No, exactly. Of course not. It's your fallback. So then you want to be in a challenge state. Okay, how do you get there? Well, challenge state means you have skills, knowledge, resources, and ability to succeed. What of those things are you missing that's putting you in this threat state? Is it a specific skill you're lacking? A resource? You don't know something, whether it's about the competition, the format, who knows? The ability? Whatever. Now, that works if you're, say, a month or two out, maybe a year or two out. I know there are people working on Japan already. Um, now, that doesn't really work, say, five minutes from the starting pistol, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're outside and you already hear the crowd cheering, that's probably not going to work. So then, rather than finding those deficits, what you need to do is change your goal. Change the goal to something that you actually think you can succeed at. And again, it can't be too easy, but something, again, you think, oh, it's kind of, you know, manageable. I can get through the first five minutes of this tournament without throwing up. Now, some people will be really nervous, and that's actually the hardest part for them, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. But, um, but so, okay, well, then we're, that, then we're not going to worry about those first five minutes. What, can you, what do you think you can get through? The warm-up? 
the uh, the coin toss. You know, if you just get through the coin toss without dropping the coin, have everybody laugh at you. Is that going to be good enough? You know, you know what I mean. So, not that you're actually catching it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but you're trying to find smaller goals where you still feel like, okay, I have a chance of doing that. And once you're just about to do that, then you roll out to another small goal. But you always keep it in the specific thing, which is why it sort of seemed like just that media training thing you're supposed to do when elite athletes say, well, you know, it's just really thinking about one play at a time. <sighs> oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's right. Because if you're thinking about one play at a time, you're thinking about that specific set of skills and requirements right then. And that's probably more doable than thinking about it in terms of how is this 90 minutes of play? How's this month-long series of, of matches going or, you know, the year-long season? That just gets too big and can get overwhelming. So, so change the goal. Now, if you're thinking, I can't figure out how to make this smaller, right? Maybe someone's a small, a slalom skier and the whole thing's done in less than a minute. I, I don't even know how to make that smaller. What do you do then? Hey. We still have to find in, hmm? Do you have an idea? I was going to tell you. But you no, 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 no. I, I mean, I'm thinking at that point, you're breaking it down and, and just taking it as a turn. I'm, do I get well, out of the gate without you're... falling down? Do I take this turn? Okay, well, that if you can get there, that, that was what I was saying, right? Make yeah. the smaller, break it up into pieces. But if you can't figure out how to break it into pieces, and sometimes I think that happens just because intellectually you just can't figure out how to break it into smaller pieces given the nature of the task, or maybe it's just because you're freaked out and it just all seems like it's all just one big thing and I can't figure out, right? You've got to recognize that people are going to be stressed and in that position. So my default, no, you know, always there, never lose sight of this. This should always be the goal. This is an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to improve. Even if it's a disaster and you show up last, you're going to learn from that experience and it won't happen again, at least not in the same way. And if you go in always saying, I'm going to learn from this, hopefully you're excited about the opportunity to improve. And that's motivating. And if you're excited about the idea that, wow, today I'm good, but tomorrow I'm going to be better because of what I'm doing now, there's no reason to be stressed. There's no reason to be in a threat state. You should always be excited. You should always be challenged. So it's that focusing on improvement. That I love. Now you see, that, <laughs> that great, right? I like, I, I am all for and And it's funny as you're talking about that, the idea on the second part of changing the goal, mm -hmm. that's something that we went through two months ago. We, we took a small group through in a goals workshop and, and something I've just talked about recently in terms of, of rehab. So I, I, I tore my Achilles last week. Um, <gasps> Owie. Yeah. I'm so guys, sorry. guys stepped on okay? me in a basketball game, uh, oh. getting there. Uh, so it, it's, I've got a 12 plus week road ahead of me. And, and I was making the point in, in kind of our blog post from mindset of when I looked at the 12 weeks and everything that goes into it, my first goal initially is like, I just want to get better. Like I just get through the end of the 12 weeks and then you start getting a little overwhelmed and, and like, mm -hmm. 
that's so much mm-hmm. to do and I have to wear this boot and I, I don't know. And mm-hmm. so then I started shifting it of, all right, today's day one of 84. I can control mm-hmm. day one of 84. Here's what I can mm-hmm. do today. Here's what I can do today. And then mm-hmm. tomorrow will be day one of 83. And so instead mm-hmm. of worrying about all 84 days and how long I have to go, it's, it's taking, Which is too much. Yeah, it's, it's way too much. Mm-hmm. You take it into mm-hmm. this day one at a time because mm-hmm. we all have energy for the first day of a pursuit and a new goal mm-hmm. and a new sport. Mm-hmm. But it's when we try to look at everything. And so I mm-hmm. love that. And I love the idea of going into that experience and shifting your mindset to this is an opportunity to learn because everything should be approached in mm-hmm. that regard. And too mm-hmm. often we fail to see that and then we get through the situation or the the obstacle or the competition, whatever the case may be. And because we didn't have that mindset, we fail to look back and see – okay, what can I do different next time? What did I learn from mm-hmm. this mistake instead of, oh, it was just a bad game? Well, why was it a bad right. game? Why was it a bad negotiation? Why did you fail that job interview? Like what mm-hmm. went wrong that you can pick? And so that, I I love that. I'm already like excited to read this new like and research. You, you <laughs> Well, and it also, I mean, if you think about it, it also lets you have room for setbacks. Because you were, you are gonna have days when you're like, "Wow, I'm feeling so much better," and then the next day you're gonna be like, "I can barely move," right? It's not, oh, well, see, it's this huge setback. It's still about focusing on improvement. It's still realizing, yes, you're going to have those, but what can you learn from it? If there was a setback, then what were you know? Did you push too hard yesterday? You just need to rest a little more, and 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 you'll learn as you're going how to do better at therapy, whether it's expectations, whether it's physical tasks, whether it's, you know, the actual mechanical manipulation. So you always are looking at how you're going to get better and believing that you can get better is going to help you keep going. So researchers looking at you know, Olympic gold medalists and other sort of world champions. And they have, you know, one of the elements of mental toughness, I'm sure you talked about it in other broadcasts, but one of the um, elements of mental toughness is a, quote, unshakable confidence. It's not that you're going to win every time, but you realize that ultimately it's going to matter and ultimately you will. Yeah. So, So you still have that. It gives you room to embrace the growth and the improvement because that just pushes you further to that goal and a current mistake, a current setback doesn't become this indictment that you should just give up. And that's, and now you see why I hate everybody gets a trophy program. Oh yes. And, and we're in the same, same, same vein for the same (laughs) reason. But now you understand like how my, how my hatred of them has grown Yes, because there's no room to improve. There's no need to improve. If you're giving everyone a trophy regardless of effort, the result is the same. Why try harder? Why practice? Why even show up? There's no... And the whole message is, you know, we give you awards for everything. All we care about is the end result, which is that you must win. And You and- must win. You must come home with a trophy. Otherwise, it's not worth doing and, and that is such a destructive practice. It is. And it's funny to me because even though we say that uh, or people say that, what I've seen and what we've we found is that people are impacted and inspired or motivated to do their own change competition because they've seen other people who've struggled and kept mm-hmm. going. 
Mm, it's nice. Not, it's not the perfect number one overall pick, golden boy mm-hmm. that goes all the way to the NFL and the Hall of Fame that people are like, oh, you're like, yeah, I want to play like them. It's the Tom Brady. Love them or, mm-hmm. or hate the Patriots. It's the, the late round draft pick that has the funny NFL combine picture that everybody's like, this guy's not a quarterback. And then ultimately has become one of, if not the greatest of all time. Like it's the person that's had the failures, the setbacks, and continues to compete and persevere that does that. And if you're always giving them the victory without them having to earn it or having to go against any adversity for it, um, I feel that it, it just seriously misses the impact that we each have on our ability to impact others. Well, I, I love that. And there's you know, research that we learn more from other people's mistakes than their successes. And so there's a lot of research that shows that as well. But I also really think it's just, again, focusing on our, how are we teaching in any context, whether it's a peewee game or grownups at a law firm or wherever, how are we encouraging improvement? And, you know, all feedback can be positive or negative. It's always, though, are you focused on how much you've achieved or the deficit, what you've lacked? And both of those are actually motivating depending on the context, right? So long-term, like with your recovery, the long-term goal, looking at the whole period, we know you're going to do fine. Positive feedback. You're doing well. Great. However, if I'm your PT and I'm watching you tomorrow, I'm going to say, ooh, I don't know. You're not working as hard as I think you are. Do you know how much harder you need to go? Do you know what you need to be doing? So in the short term, that negative feedback is actually more motivating because you're focusing on that deficit, how much more you need to achieve. So for kids, I want them to really embrace this idea of I have so much more to achieve, but it's not a bad thing, which actually leads to that new science that I'm obsessed with. You want to hear Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so if anybody's interested, I wrote a piece last December for the Washington Post. So you can find it online on the signs of humility, and it has changed how I see the world. And I, that's not hyperbol- hyperbolic. That's just really the truth. So the scientific definition of humility isn't about self-abasement. It's not about low self-esteem. The scientific definition is an accurate view of your strengths and weaknesses in the context of the whole. I'm going to break each one of those three parts down. It's an accurate view. You also need to understand that you may not see yourself accurately. You may be too good and too easy on yourself. You may be too hard on yourself. So that's, again, when you need that competition because they help you clarify whether or not your view of your abilities is accurate. Strengths. If you know you're good at something, then your responsibility is to say, how do I use this talent? How do I contribute? If you know your weaknesses, but you know your strengths, you don't need to feel defensive, right? Yeah, I'm not as good at this as they are, but I'm good at that thing, right? So again, that opponent we talked about earlier, if I know my strengths, I can say, hey, I can help you get better on this task. I know my weaknesses. You can help me do better on this. 
and or I can celebrate that person's achievement because I recognize that they're better at it than me. And that's exciting for me because it's an opportunity to grow and learn from them, right? So I'm going to celebrate their achievements. I'm not going to feel competitive and need to tear them down. And that in the context of the whole, I could be Michael Jordan. If there's no one else on my team, I'm still having a problem because at some point I got to pass the ball, right? So it could be the context of a team. It could be a community. It could be as big as you want to go, stars in the sky, history of the universe, look over the ocean and the Grand Canyon and realize all things considered, you're not all that. But not in a dispiriting, I'm worthless way, but in a way to help empower that if you have a day-to-day frustration, you wanted something to go better and it didn't, you're unhappy with where things are, this helps put in perspective because it's not just all about you. So when you have this focus, then it turns to be, because I have my strengths, how do I contribute? My weaknesses, how do I grow? And it becomes that quest for improvement. How do I get feedback? How do I get experiences? How do I find things to learn from and to teach others when I do well? And all of that becomes this opportunity for growth, which we both said should be really exciting and should drive everything. I love that. I love that. And and obviously there's there's a lot going on with with that that I think uh, as we talked about before we hop on we are absolutely going to have to do a future show uh, <laughs> to dive into a little bit more uh, probably from a looking back perspective um, and being able to show all of the dots connected um, actually they're this, all connected oh, because everybody yeah. gets a trophy program. <laughs> Don't yeah. teach humility because they don't teach you an accurate view of your strengths or weaknesses in the context of the whole. Not one of those things is satisfied by everybody gets a trophy or no one keeps score or any false praise. Not one of them because the focus is on distracting you from realizing your capabilities. If you don't know your capabilities now, how do you know you're how to improve them for the future? Mic drop. I love it. Actually, this has been, oh, this has been so much fun. All right. So for anyone that would love to connect with you, um, where could they find you on social media or on your website uh, to start following along with the work and everything that you're creating, um, as well as I'm going to be linking in the show to to your books. uh, And I'm going to be giving away two copies of Top Dog uh, to people that leave comments and reviews in iTunes for us and also will go on one of your chosen social media platforms and follow you. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, I'm AshleyMerriman.com. There's a website with links to articles I've written and uh, a form email, but it goes straight to me. It's not, not some random spam thing. It just goes to me. And I'm on Twitter and we have some sort of Facebook pages, but the easiest thing to do if you want to talk to me directly is through email or through Twitter. Awesome. And yeah, and I'm not as good tweeting out words of wisdom, <laughs> but as you can tell, brevity is a virtue, but it ain't mine. And 140 characters is not exactly my medium, but I try. <laughs> hey, you're very active on there as well, which is what I uh, I appreciate, and obviously your work. Uh, is fantastic. And so, like I said, we'll be giving away a, a couple of copies of Top Dog. I've read it numerous times. You're not getting my copy, uh, but I've got a couple <laughs> of copies we will be giving away. Ashley, thank you so much for joining the show this week. Oh, thank you for having me. It was, it was a blast. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. To connect with the show, be sure to check us out at betterthanyesterdaypodcast.com. You can even email the show at podcast at competeeveryday.com. And don't forget, if you want to win one of those two copies of Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing, that I'm going to be giving away, you have to do two things. First, you have to go on Twitter and follow Ashley Merriman. We've got links here in the show notes. Second, you've got to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It takes you five seconds. Go on, leave us, a rating, leave us a rating. Tell us what you think of the show. Give us some feedback. We're always reading those, reviewing those, so that we can continue to provide you great guests, great content, and actionable resources that you can use to be better than yesterday. So, Follow Ashley, leave us a rating and review. I'll be picking two lucky winners to receive a copy of Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Can't wait to see you again next week. As always, keep competing every day to be better than yesterday.